0: Welcome to the Startup Help Desk. We are experienced founders here to answer your questions about building businesses, selling businesses, and the meaning of life. My name is Sean Burns. I've been a multi time founder of some companies like Flurry and Outlier. I've invested in hundreds of companies, I've coached many more, and I've made every possible mistake you could make. And I'm here to save you that same trouble. I'm joined by a panel of judges and founders who are here to answer questions with
1: me Ash and Nick. Hi, everyone. My name's Ash Rust. I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I usually invest in B2B companies based in the United States, UK, and Canada through my fund Sterling Road. And previously, I worked at places like Trinity Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence and bullpen capital as an advisor. Before investing, I was an entrepreneur myself, most notably an early employee at the social media analysis company Clout, as well as the co-founder and CEO of SendUp. These days, I spend most of my time coaching founders and I've helped more than a thousand startups over the years.
2: Hey, this is Nick Meliones. I am co-founder and CEO of Navi. We help folks learn innovation skills, solve mission-critical problems, and start companies. This is my second startup. My first one was a Bitcoin startup. I've supported hundreds of innovators and startups along the way, and I'm thrilled to be here for another episode. This is always so much fun, so I'm ready to get into it.
0: And remember, all the questions we're going to answer today were submitted by founders just like you. So if you have a question, we'd love to answer it for you head over to thestartuphelpdesk.com or find us on Twitter as thestartuphd. That's thestartuphelpdesk.com or on Twitter as thestartuphd. Although guys, I hear Twitter's about to end, so we might need to find a new handle on a new service. We'll have to look into that for the future. But right now, let's get to answering some questions, which is of course why we're here. Now, everyone probably has heard us talk about customer discovery before. It's how you learn about customers and learn about problems long before you found product market fit and you're building your product. Today's episode, all of our questions are about customer discovery. And this means lots of founders have questions and that's great, that's what we're here for. So let's get started guys. Our first question is when you're doing customer discovery, how do you conduct an effective interview? And that interview is you're sitting down with a a person who might be a customer, you wanna learn more about them. How do you interview them for maximum effect? Nick and Ash, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I love this. I'll, I'll break it down into three parts for how I think about it. Then I'll kick it back to Ash. So part one is the introduction for the interview. I like to make sure that the interviewee knows what our objective. Ultimately, our goal is to learn if this person or business has a problem. And we want to make sure that we've got a fast way to collect that info. And the interview is the way to do that. So during the intro, I make it clear that I'm not selling something I spend some time disarming the interviewee, so to speak. And ultimately, I explain that the goal of this interview is not for the person to tell me things that make me feel good. And so I'm not quizzing them. So I start by so a Nick, setting... Nick, Nick, does that mean
0: that the customers you're talking to are showing up for these interviews with weapons if you're disarming them?
2: The customer interviews are a dangerous, dangerous game rife with challenges, that is for sure. And so you have to come <laughs> ready for anything. It's true. And so I like to make sure that ultimately they know that number one, this is a safe place. And to your point, we're not quizzing them. We're not looking for right or wrong answers. Instead, I'm trying to figure out, am I spending my time effectively investigating this problem? So I start there. Then for the interview itself, I break it into really three stages. I ask a when question. So I say, when was the last time you did X, Y, and Z thing? That helps us anchor our conversation in reality and the problem I'm trying to solve. Then I ask them behavioral questions to make sure that I understand how they solve the problem today. And then lastly, I ask some more subjective questions for me to go deeper into their emotions and motivations. Then I won't get into the full details, but I thank them. I make sure they know I want to keep talking to them. And ultimately, I ask them if they can introduce me to others so I can continue this interview process and speak to more great folks. That's my general framework. Ash, what's your take?
1: So for me, the most important thing is you have to get them talking. This is not an interview for yourself, right? You're not talking to yourself, but so many founders spend a lot of time talking during these interviews. And they really should be doing a lot of the listening instead. So prepare for the call, make sure you have some points of affinity, some early icebreakers, some small talks, it doesn't seem transactional. But really, we just want to get the customer talking mainly about their problems. Let's not assume that the problem that you're trying to uh, investigate is in fact a big problem for them. Let them talk about the problems they're having. Let them talk about how they're solving those problems and why they're a problem. You may well discover a better problem than what you initially imagined. Now, of course, you can provide possible solutions. And what we're looking for when you have those solutions is this idea that they're super excited about it, that they're willing to trust a small startup such as yourself. They're reaching across the table saying, hey, I need that right now. I'm going to get promoted if you uh, if you give me that. So please put me on the wait list. And then at the end of the meeting, we want to schedule another meeting. Are they excited enough to chat again? Do they want to go on the mailing list? Do they want to hear more about the product or what you're investigating? And uh, the other key piece outside of just getting them talking is just volume. So a lot of people make the mistake of maybe talking to 20 to 30 people during customer discovery. Really, it needs to be in the hundreds. A lot of serial entrepreneurs that I work with will speak to more than 200 people during the customer discovery phase.
0: So I, this brings up an interesting question that I have not thought about before. Let's say you're in the midst of an interview. Are there signs that can come up where you're like, well, actually, this is a waste of time, that this person is not really a valid prospect. And I don't want to waste the entire interview. Do you ever just cut it off and you're like, actually, this, is, this was a mistake. Thanks for
1: your time and move on. Or do you always follow through no matter what? Well, I think you can be polite without wasting people's time. So if obviously they're like, no, we don't have this problem. We're really happy with our existing solutions. I'm not really sure on why I'm on this call. Then you want to be polite and try and find some kind of reasonable exit strategy that doesn't make anyone feel offended. But remember that because we're on the customer discovery journey, we want to be very careful about cutting off a lead at this point because we may have to come back to them with a different product in a matter of weeks. So I would be very careful about... Uh, Trying to cut off a call quickly for the sake of 20 minutes when in fact that might be a valuable lead in the future
2: that's a great call and i'll just say that ultimately it's a function of do they have the problem and is this the right person to be speaking to if it turns out that the problem exists but they're not the right person to be talking to then you adjust your conversation by ultimately guiding it towards getting some initial details but then ultimately the next step should be them facilitating an intro to the right person that way, you can reduce the length of the interview considerably, get value, build the relationship, and ultimately have a nice transition to the next person to speak to.
0: And so, and so, Nick, if you're, let's say you're selling uh, military technology to the military and you show up at the meeting, how do you effectively disarm the military? I'm curious how that goes
2: that You love putting me on on the spot with that one That is so good Disarming the military is no small feat That is for sure I'm sorry,
1: This is why you're you not go. a deep it's tech just... investor, Nick It's why you have to make so.
2: a <laughs> Oh, that is well, good this is,
0: Nick, Nick has a great story about disarming a, a sword juggler As part of his circus research and So oh, we'll that's get right. to that in a future episode
2: I, I have no experience disarming the military That is for sure <laughs>
0: Okay, we're, we're in, in danger of suffering from Sean's sense of humor far too much in this episode. So let's keep going. Nick, what other questions danger. about customer discovery? Danger. What are you talking discovery? about? Danger. We're already
1: fast. We're, <laughs> we're in the volcanic crater. Vesuvius is going.
0: Nick, save us. Save us. Give us another question about customer discovery.
2: All right, let's do it. What do I do if I'm hearing different things from different customers during discovery?
1: I'll start with this one. So it would be weird if you were hearing all the same thing from customers, then you should be suspicious. So you have to expect there to be a wide variance in the opinions you receive during the early parts of customer discovery until you're narrowing down on a profile until you've got some pretty good idea of what the problems are. And you also have to really remember that what people say and what they do will be very, very different along the way. So what I like to do is test demand. So people say, oh, I want X or Y product. And another group of people say they want A or B product. Well, how badly do they want that solution? Are they willing to pay for it? How soon do they want that kind of thing to go live? Um, and then when you have one interview where it goes perhaps one particular way and they push towards uh, a particular strategy, test that strategy in the next discussion you have with a completely new customer. Do they react positively? To that. That way, you can at least see if this idea is more prevalent or if uh, other people share that opinion. And then, if you want to go broader, maybe this idea is gaining traction, then you can do things like automated testing. That's where you might do Google ads or Facebook ads to see whether or not there's demand for this particular problem to be solved, this particular solution that you're building. And remember to focus on really narrow customer profiles as well. If you're hearing lots of things in customer discovery, it may well be that you're just talking to different types of customers. And so it's to be expected if we haven't narrowed down our customer profile. Sean.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Except sometimes I do hear the same thing over and over again. And typically it goes along the lines of, who are you and how do you get in here? But that might be specific to my style, uh, keeping that in mind.
1: Yeah, you've Um, got to stop going to do, you guys just need to go and talk to people, you know?
0: (laughs) I agree with what you said, Ash. It would be weird if you started to hear the same thing from people during customer discovery. I would actually be worried that if if everybody said the same thing, you're either asking the wrong question or the problem is so self-evident that it's going to be a very crowded space. Uh, the only things I have to add, one is, it's really important to keep in mind that you should always be listening more than talking during these interviews. And so you actually want to hear different things because you're looking for those nuggets of insight Um, potential customers are horrible at imagining what a solution might look like, but they're great at complaining about their problems, but the language they use to complain about their problems is very unlikely to be consistent. And so you're going to hear different things. Your job is to take that back and look for that common thread that's woven through all of the responses that you got. And instead of asking them, well, do you like X or do you like Y, which is a very easy question for them to get wrong. You you just listen for how do they talk about their problems? How are they summarizing it? And in the future, you can come back with a proposal saying, if I had a solution that did this, would that work for you? But that comes in the future. So
1: I think that's absolutely true. And would your spouse say that you are good or bad at synthesizing complaints?
0: (laughs) Well, whatever she would say is absolutely the right answer uh, under all circumstances.
1: Yes. (laughs) What a good response. Look at that. That's jujitsu right there, folks.
0: it, that's the voice of experience for you. That's absolutely the voice of experience. And by the way, I, I also, one of the things that Nick said the first time about disarming the audience is important. I, because I think that what ends up happening is the more that you're, the person you're interviewing trusts you, the more that they actually think you're listening or that there's something in it for them about being honest, the more honest they will be with you. And in general, people are going to have somewhat of a guard up, especially if you're a stranger, somebody that they don't know. Maybe you reached out to them cold or you came in through a second or third degree connection. Think about it this way. What is their incentive to be really honest with you and actually tell you about their real problems? They don't know if you're going to go tell their boss or somehow it might get out So if you can put them at ease, build trust, make it clear that being honest with you is in their best interest, you will get higher fidelity feedback and more interesting insights. But it's not easy. Part of why you need, and and Ash is absolutely right, you have to have hundreds of these. Partly why you need so many is not everyone is ever going to trust you. Not everyone's ever going to be honest with you. Some of the data points you collect will be purposefully misleading, because these people are, have built their job around framing a problem in a specific way and they're not willing to be honest with you about what the problem actually is because maybe it's job security for them. So if you can put them at ease and build trust, you increase the chances they'll be honest with you. But under no circumstances should you take at face value everything people say. And it's not because they want to mislead you or they're malicious. The question is actually the inverse, which is what is exactly is their incentive to be honest with you. So just keep that in the back of your mind as you're doing these interviews and doing hundreds and hundreds of them across God. I mean, I don't know, Nick and Ash, do you have any estimates for how many customer discovery interviews you've done in your career in starting companies? As far as I could, I tried to estimate it before this episode and I it just, I lost
1: track. I think it would be probably close to a thousand. That is probably accurate. I mean, it's been 15 years of struggling in this great startup ocean. So who knows how many people have had to speak to me on that grave journey. But I would expect that for every company that I've done, there's probably had to be at least a couple of hundred of those kinds of interviews, even if it was just for products that we were launching, where maybe I wasn't even the founder, and you'd still be doing that kind of work uh, product by product, feature by feature. So it's just an imperative part of the startup process. You simply have to do it. Uh, So get used to it, folks.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I like the two to 300 uh, volume amount that Ash set forth initially. It's the right number to shoot for because it really does that. Take it takes that amount of volume in order to start seeing the trends and to start really even running these interviews the right way.
1: All right, we we've got time for one more question. How much time should makers put towards building versus selling and customer discovery? How much time should makers put towards building versus selling and customer discovery? This
0: is. Uh, let me jump in here first, Nick. This is a great question, and the reason this is such a good question. Thank is you, Sean. I appreciate you. Your <laughs> And acknowledging my selection there. If, if your background is in product or engineering, your first instinct is to start building because that's what you're good at. That's what you know. And smart people that are good at something, if you ever find yourself in a difficult situation, your natural inclination is a fallback on your strengths. And if you're good at building, your first inclination is a fallback on building, especially if it's your first company and you're stressed about building a startup and you're stressed about not getting paid you'll want to do that. And it's always the wrong decision. Until you hit product market fit, the most important thing you can be doing is learning about the market, doing the customer discovery interviews, connecting the dots. Building is the most expensive thing you will do. It takes the most time, it's the most difficult, it's also the hardest to iterate. So you want to wait until you really clear a signal on what you need to build until you start doing that. And even when you start building, you want to do it with that feedback loop, with the customers in the loop, helping give you feedback on the product at every stage, even in its very early primordial ooze phases, which means that a lot of your time will be spent on customer discovery. Even if, again, your background is in product engineering and building is what come naturally and customer discovery might not come naturally to you, you end up having to do that to avoid wasting your time. Uh, And that's true of consumer products and enterprise. In fact, in consumer, it's more important that you're testing and iterating, seeing what people resonate with. Because if you just build in a vacuum, imagining you've created this mystical solution to this problem in your head, I guarantee you'll miss the mark. It's just impossible to, to see through the eyes of the customer that clearly. Now, at the same time, once you do get product market fit. And once you do start to build a team, then you can start to build and do customer discovery selling at the same time. But as one person, the, co- the switching cost of jumping between building and customer discovery is high. So you want to try to make sure you're always biased towards the discovery and the learning to make sure you're not wasting your time building. I cannot tell you how many founders I have met that have wasted years of their life building something without talking to customers, without talking to the market, believing that they just have to build this new high-performance database that's going to be the core of this new CRM product they're building. And it turns out that when they're done, that market wasn't there and those customers didn't need it, or at least they didn't need it in the way that they thought. So you have to be biased until you get product market fit. But at, But Nick, what do you think?
2: Yeah, this is, this is good. I like to think of it in three stages and they really mirror how you've described it here. Day one, 100% of your focus is on discovery. And to your point, the reason here is that you have a huge risk with your startup idea. The risk is that there's absolutely no demand for it and that you don't understand the problem you're solving. And so de-risk it by investing all of your time around discovery on day one. Then when you're transitioning into phase two of this, And you found out that you do indeed have a problem that's worth solving. You want to then test your ability to solve it. And so during this phase two, you've got this balance of building and discovery. And the key thing here is that building can mean so many different things. Many folks equate building to ultimately writing software, building hardware, ultimately building the final manifestation of your product. So you really that? should just hire
1: 30 engineers after your seed round and just blow it right out.
2: I, I, I got to get involved in some of these rounds that that you're raising, Ash. That, is, uh, <laughs> that must be a big round. Yeah, the key, of course, is to not do that. And of course, these are opinions, folks, but I would say ultimately, um, you can de-risk your process uh, in a huge way by ultimately testing out your products in small incremental ways.
0: No, 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 Nick. You misunderstand. Normal people have opinions. As experts, we have
1: expertise. It is totally different.
2: That's so true. That's so true. So you can put yeah, a stamp on me. this.
1: Obviously, you're not watching enough CNN, Nick. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is too good. Yes, yeah, so you can take this one at the bank then. So ultimately, build, but do so in a way where you're providing incremental value and finding fast, inexpensive ways to test your solution. That's phase Sorry. two while doing your discovery. Okay, go for it.
0: Oh, I was just curious, Ash, you coach a lot of companies. Are there things that you, when you're coaching a company, you look for to make sure they're maintaining that right balance? Because it's also possible to think that you have the right balance. You think you're spending enough time in discovery, but you're not. Like from the outside, what do you look for, Ash, to make sure that that team really is maintaining the right balance?
1: I usually ask them about top of funnel metrics, because if you're not talking to customers, then usually the top of the funnel is starting to narrow and even though you might still be growing, you might still be closing new customers, you might still be engaging existing customers through the new features that you're shipping or the bug fixes, the top of the funnel starting to tail off is usually an indicator of a lack of that customer discovery, um, uh, you know, outreach, uh, advisory board stuff. Fair
0: enough. I, I had this, um, somebody framed this to me once, which is if you're a product-oriented person, and you're coming out of either a big company where it's really hard to build product because you have to get approvals and things, or you're coming out of a startup that really didn't work out, you can have a lot of built up potential energy, a lot of energy around building product. And and somebody referred to it as the madness, which I really like, which is you have this madness where you just desperately want to build product because you haven't been able to build product for so long, trapped in these bureaucracies, these broken Mm, situations. And you have to fight the madness because the madness is not the way to finding product market fit. And it was a, it was a brilliant framing that I actually, I personally, I felt seen. I was like, I know what that feeling is like. I know what you mean by the madness where I'm so eager and so desperate to just build something that I have to literally restrain myself. I don't know if your guys' experience is similar, but that really spoke to me.
1: Oh, for sure. I remember at SendHub when we were just a texting company and that we were growing like absolute wildfire. And then I insisted on us adding voice as a feature to the phone numbers. And it just ended up being a huge problem with all tons and tons of work. And until we went back to just focusing on messaging, it was very, very tough for us. And that was driven by this mania, this build mania of, well, we've got to ship new things in order to grow.
2: Yeah, part of the problem is that building is fun. And so it's really difficult to turn it down, so to speak. And that's why, of course, it makes sense to be really thoughtful and be careful not to build. We don't have proof just yet.
0: There you go, everybody listening. If you take anything away from this podcast, it's that it's time to build, but but not just yet, until you do some more customer discovery and really qualify your problem first.
2: There so it is, yep. That's <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay, we're out of time. Uh, the Startup Help Desk is coming to a close. As always, Ash and Nick, it was a ton of fun. Thank you for all the insights and expertise.
2: Thank you both. Absolute blast as always. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thanks for that great, catchy
1: phrase as well. Feel free to use that, folks. It will be on the upcoming Startup Help
0: Desk mugs and t-shirts in our store, which we are never going to have. If you have questions you would like us to cover in a future episode, we'd love to do that. You can find us on our website, thestartuphelpdesk.com or on Twitter at thestartuphd. We appreciate your questions and we hope that these answers are helping in your journey. Until our next episode, good luck on your startup journey.